0: I enjoy interesting food. It's not that difficult to have an existing recipe and change it or add to it. I would change the vegetables or I would change this and then I decided to do it with lobster. So it's, it's sort of tweaking recipes. Hi,
1: I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And my guest today knows that well-lived life more than most. She's the very definition of an influencer, but you won't find her on social media. It feels reductive to simply call her a style icon and philanthropist, but both of those titles are truly accurate. Using the term socialite seems terribly unfitting, But her ability to entertain, connect, and lead are second to none. And for those listeners who may not be familiar with American society of the 60s, 70s, and beyond, the charmed circles she hails from are the closest thing we have to royal family here in the States. She not only had a front-row seat to much of the history of style, but had a real role in it. And through her efforts in medical research, she's made a genuine impact on the lives of millions. She's also the only guest I've ever had who has elicited the response of an audible, high-pitched gasp when I would tell friends in the worlds of fashion and design that she would be on the program. Dita Blair. It's nearly impossible to encapsulate her life into an intro such as this, but I'll give you the basics as best I can. Born Catherine Gerlach, Dita is a nickname. She was raised in Chicago, the daughter of a prominent lawyer, and was later introduced to her future husband by Eunice Shriver, sister to President Kennedy. Her husband, William McCorlick Blair Jr., was a diplomat who served as the ambassador to Denmark and then the Philippines under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. It was at Life with Blair, who passed in 2015, where Adidas' grace and ability to entertain made her a legend. As a style icon, she's known for her legendary couture wardrobe and personal relationships with designers such as Givenchy and others. And her signature bouffant hasn't changed in decades, but always looks absolutely cutting edge. After the couple's diplomatic posts abroad, the pair moved to Washington and finally on to New York in the aughts, where Dita lives today. But any talk of style pales in comparison to Dita's true accomplishment in life, the stunning impact she's had on medical research as a fundraiser, board member, and advisor to various biotech companies and research foundations. She's a rare figure who can speak equally on Cristobal Balenciaga as much as she can about gene sequencing. More on that later, including discussion about her very own Dita Blair Research Initiative for Disorders of the Brain at the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health. Her latest venture is her new book from Rizzoli, Dita Blair, Food, Flowers, and Fantasy. It's part biography, part cookbook, and part trip down memory lane, published to raise funds for her foundation. I accepted Dita's invitation to lunch at her home on New York's seaside for a salad and dessert, an incredible green grape mold with custard sauce. After being too embarrassed to ask for seconds, we sat down to discuss her life, how she met Billy Baldwin, her love of James Bond films, and what it was like in the world of medicine when she was the only woman in the room. I was wondering if you could maybe bring uh, listeners a little bit through uh, your early life um, in Chicago Um, and tell me a little bit about how that started. It, how your life started in Chicago and and how I, I heard that you weren't allowed to study biology uh, <laughs> at school.
0: I went to a convent at the Sacred Heart and they were not deeply interested in science. You had a choice of botany or physics and you had quite a few history of religion and that kind of thing. And my mother had gone to a Sacred Heart convent And so, this was ordained. Mm. And I think it was a good education. They had a course in logic, which was not being done in many schools at Mm. the time.
1: Sounds like a Jesuit kind of thing. Yes. yes, In a way. Yeah.
0: There was a boys' school attached up until eighth grade, and then they instantly went off to the Jesuit school, (laughs) Loyola and But you had to wear a uniform. I don't mind the idea of uniforms because you don't have to think about what you're going to wear and plan it so well. But these were particularly hideous uniforms with brown Oxfords and brown knee socks and really very ugly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And um, would you consider it like uh, those happy years? I mean, a school uniform aside? Yes, yes.
0: I had interests. I played a great deal of tennis and also riding. And I had interesting friends. And they were very pleasant years. And Chicago was in a period of growing and wonderful buildings being designed. No, it was, it was a very pleasant city. I think I always knew that I didn't want to stay there forever.
1: Mm-hmm. And the book, of course, mixes this sort of love of Travel and food and entertaining all sort of intertwined. And I read that your parents took you on two separate trips around the world um, and that you went to always went to Paris first. Is that right?
0: That's correct. No, they adored to travel. And also, my mother did photographs and they really went all over the world. They also liked wonderful restaurants. The first trip was extraordinary. I did go to Paris for about 10 days before the trip began and had read so much about Paris and I had, you know, sort of knew where things were and I've never done so much walking in my life. And if I, I mean, eight, ten 10 miles a day all over in every direction, and if I was lost, I'd just get in a taxi and come back to the hotel. That was a trip that included Egypt and Italy, of course, and also Greece. The next round-the-world trip was more to Asia, and that fascinated me entirely. I adored India, had my fortune told practically every day. Did you
1: like what they had to say?
0: Well, they always said quite pleasant things. Oh, god. <laughs> And then in, in Thailand, I was captivated by all the kite flying. And I had young friends in Chicago, the Shriver children. So from that moment on, I was carrying about six big kites on the rest of the trip to bring them home. <laughs> ah, oh, I see. And, uh, and from Thailand, we went to Cambodia. In those days, Angkor Wat was really a very... Special thing in the middle of the jungle. Mm -hmm. Now they're very grand hotels and it's um, you know resorts. But I climbed over Mm. all of Angkor (laughs) Wat, and there were so many interesting things that were. uh, Then in Hong Kong, I was offered a job. I had some clothes copied, Mm. and the woman was intrigued. I had, a, I remember a Blanciaga dress and as you coat she co- copied. And I think she saw that her business would perhaps improve. My parents were horrified at the idea that I would think of remaining in Hong Kong and hmm. working there. So that did not happen.
1: How long were these uh, sort of trips? These long? Oh,
0: they would be four or five weeks. Oh, okay, And then in Japan, I've, gone back many times since then, but the first trip I do remember, I galvanized the concierge to find an individual person to teach me flower arranging, not particularly Japanese flower arranging, but just how they treated flowers and what I was introduced to a charming woman who did teach me how to handle flowers and smash stems and oh, all the leaves, etc. When I left, I started walking back to the hotel because I hadn't asked to order a taxi. And I was hit by a bicycle. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can remember that. Luckily, no damage. And anyway, they were... When you do sort of huge trips like that with many kinds of experiences, it opens your mind to the differences in the world.
1: I'm wondering if you could tell me a uh, uh, fast forwarding a little bit, um, to how you, you met your late husband William and and what those sort of uh, what that sort of courtship was like and what that sort of early part of, of of your life with him was like.
0: Well, it was a long courtship, nearly four years. But they were political years. And I lived next door to Eunice Shriver and of course I visited at the Cape and all of that, and I knew the whole family, as did Bill. Bill was deeply involved. He really was sort of what you might call the manager of the Stevenson campaigns. I met him at a dinner party at the Shrivers, and it turned out we both adored movies, and that came up, and we began going to the movies and having dinner, and uh, Eunice with us a great deal of the time. Because of this, experience which was really global in nature because between the stevenson campaigns they traveled the world he was much more interesting than most men (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we had just so many interests in common and he was he was a very very thoughtful person of course with beautiful manners and all of that but it also had a very dry sense of humor. Mm. So it was it was fun and it was happy and it stayed that way. I can only remember three quarrels mm. in our whole 53 years of marriage.
1: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And do you remember uh, what it was like when you, you know, when... At what point was he named ambassador to, to Denmark? You know how how many years after you guys had met that happened?
0: Oh, about four years. And first, adlai was named to the UN, and Bill's one of Bill's partners, Bill Wirtz, was made Secretary of Labor, and Newt Minow was made head of Communications, and Bill was the last one to be appointed. They. Asked him to go to South Africa and some other country, and um, he wanted to go to Denmark, and he made that quite clear.
1: Why Denmark? What did what did he? He had
0: been he had been there several times before and had friends and
1: he ah, loved okay. it,
0: and it was a charming, wonderful place to mm. live.
1: And do you remember, you know your your first major dinner, you know, as the, sort of the wife of an ambassador, and and you know, what you had to plan and and what that experience was like?
0: Well, I was dealing with a Danish chef that had been hired by my mother-in-law, thank God, before. For some reason, he thought that we'd like to serve Danish food. And that was not my idea at all. I thought we should be serving some, you know, American or French, French American or what have you. I can remember there was a charming man, his name was, was Prince Vigo mm-hmm. and he was seated next to me and we had sole with sauteed grapes over it. And that was something apparently never seen or heard of in Denmark. <laughs> I'd had it in France and at home. And he said, What are these? Eggs? <laughs> 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 and he he just kept sort of nodding his head puzzled, but he he said, in the end, I liked it <laughs> he said
1: <laughs> and uh in that time, I mean how long were you in Denmark for?
0: We were there a little over three years,
1: and how many different assignments was he did he have before coming back to was it only Denmark or before he came before you guys came back no, to no Denmark
0: States? was first, and then we were offered a choice of Pakistan, Indonesia or the Philippines mm. And despite these round-the-world trips, none of those countries had been included. So I had no opinion whatsoever. I'll leave it up to Bill. And um, in retrospect, I kept thinking, oh, well, I wish I'd chosen Pakistan. It's much closer to Paris. (laughs) But he chose the Philippines. And it was a very, very interesting, very... um, it was a complicated time because it was the height of the war in Vietnam, and the assignment was to encourage Filipino government to send more support they sent you know people who not would not be bearing rifles or, but would be driving ambulances or things like that and um, there also there was an air base and a sea base and all large and important. So it was a different, it was a different atmosphere entirely than than Denmark, and uh, we were there for the last year. President Makabal, Makabagal. So that was quite interesting. I I traveled quite a lot in those years, um, both in Asia and you know two or three times a year to Paris, <laughs> and. Um, It was a a very good experience to have and very, very different. We we lived in a terrible, terrible shack. The next ambassador rented a house in a much nicer section. We were right on the water. Food for dinners was cooked at home, but we had a dining room that only held eight people. So things were done at the embassy rather than the residence. And so food would steam down the highway in jeeps and what have you. But we had movie screening. Every year for my birthday, Bill managed to get James Bond movies.
1: And was that for you specifically? Mm -hmm. Because you were a James Bond fan? Or maybe you were a- Huge
0: James Bond.
1: Or a Sean Connery fan or both?
0: James Bond. Okay. I kept volunteering to do missions for, I knew the CIA person in the embassy, (laughs) helping you know, to go someplace interesting.
1: Anyway. Did anybody ever take you up on the offer?
0: Unfortunately, no. Oh. They didn't think I had the good cover I thought I had.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Before we return to Dita, a word from our sponsor, Ansax. Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again. Ansax. Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile showcasing modern, timeless design. Sach's latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. With the company's incredible experience as a foundation, Sachs is offering a curated selection of more than 60 varieties of marble, quartz, porcelain, and granite. And this summer, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand with their design associates on everything surface-related. For more information about any Anne Sachs tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansaks.com. Dita's understated sense of style is legendary. She was close friends with Hubert Givenchy, she spent summers with him for decades, especially in Venice, and she cared for her interiors with the same passion as her closets. Through her collection of massive scrapbooks that she still has today, she absorbs inspiration from her life and travels, and knows as much about every element of her own home as any designer. I wanted to ask Dita about meeting Givenchy, working with Billy Baldwin, and her massive detailed scrapbooks that are the stuff of legend. And I, you know, I read that you had sought out um, your friend Hubert Givenchy after seeing Andre Hepburn in Funny Face, the film. And I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about what he was like as a person and what it was like to, to be with him in the atelier and, and, and work with him in that way.
0: Hubert Givenchy was a remarkable person. He had huge talent, I think, as a designer. At least I thought they were the kind of clothes I loved to wear. And he was a very distinguished person. I think in reality, he would have preferred being an interior designer because he loved to do up houses and did magical ones. I saw four different apartments in Paris, one was first department, which was much smaller, and then a house on the Rue de saint pere and another on the Rue de l'Université. And they were—he he didn't cling to anything. He was always upgrading, and yet you never felt that it was too grand or too lavish, even though there were the most important pieces of furniture and. We also were always in Venice at the same time. And I adored both Hubert and Philippe, and we saw a lot of them there. And I remember one day he was thinking of making a major change at Jean Shea, his country house. And it was based on the gardens at the Chini Foundation, which had. Giant to find circles, and we went over and we sat looking, and looking, and looking, and he considered everything very carefully before doing it. So if he may, if he was going to change something, it was always an improvement. And I don't think you can say that about
1: everybody. That's true. That's true. Um, was he always sort of like amenable to changes that you may have wanted to make, or? in anything yeah. clothes or related? Oh,
0: yes. Um, I don't think he let too many people make changes. But I would just simply explain away my life and how I needed it and this and that. And I could say I want the sleeve of this one and I want the collar of that one and fabric of that one. And some of my favorite evening dresses were, I remember one was a white pot dress and it had, like, an apron of Point d'Esprit in the back. And I said, I want the whole dress of Pointe d'Esprit over the photosport. He said, what a great idea. And then he added a black velvet thing here. It was a dress I wore for about eight years. It was done. The changes were made together. Like he would say to me, "Dee, you have so many suits, because you were going to luncheons all the time in the embassy years. He said, what about just a skirt and a coat and a sweater? We didn't talk about clothes a lot except when we were there, at, you know, in the studio and outside of that. And,
1: and speaking of uh, love of design and decoration, um, you had met Billy Baldwin, who I believe worked with you on one of your homes. Is that right? Yeah. And so how did you meet Billy? Um.
0: I met him at a luncheon in Lake Forest. He did quite a lot of work in Lake Forest. And when we bought the house in Washington, it was quite large, which it needed to be because Bill was the first general director of the Kennedy Center. And we had to do quite a lot of entertaining. And I knew that I couldn't just do it myself. And, If I was going to have help, I wanted what I thought was the best person in the world. And we became friends immediately and adored all the same things. And we, we did a lot of, we had a lot of lunches in New York and dinners and what have you. Billy was a wonderful conversationalist. He was, he had a sense of comfort as well as a distinct style, but it was very subtle.
1: So when it comes to travel and everything that uh that that travel brings to life I heard that you have you have 22 scrapbooks um with images from you know nine decades of travels um is that true and do you have They
0: are right there.
1: They're quite large.
0: They there. are large and they cover so many things. Um they are some of them are divided by by country. Some are gardens, some are rooms. Some are called infinite variety. And those are just amazing photographs. They range from nude photographs, the ballet dancer.
1: Oh, uh, Nuriyev. Nuriyev, of course.
0: To balls in Venice, to fantastic pictures in China. And those are perhaps the most fun to read people love to come and look at the
1: scrapbooks do you do you look through them yourself yes. every once in a while yeah
0: and um, they were very much used for the book bill kept scrapbooks mm-hmm. and i think he had 57 scrapbooks Gosh. that began at birth practically and he loved the scrapbooks and those went to the Chicago History Museum, and mine are going to Daniel Romaldas, mm. and he will give them then to the Bonnakee Library at Yale. And they're, they're very special, and I, so I, there was a paper shop that I went to very frequently in Venice, and I saw some books bound in vellum parchment that were done for the Vatican. And so I found a wonderful bookbinder, Paul Vogel, on Long Island, and he said he could do the vellum-bound books. And then I have Italian paper in the linings, I'll show you one of them. And. Uh,
1: with a lot of your travels, did you have pictures that you had taken yourself? quite a or?
0: few pictures that I've taken, but you usually find. And um, for years and years, I kept them in folders. And then when we moved to New York, Bill was working on his, and I found a young man that could come and do the pasting for him. And so I then use the same thing. I would lay them out because they're laid out almost the precision of a magazine. There's nothing about us in these scrapbooks. That was all in Bill's scrapbook.
1: Oh, I see. Okay. So these are all more inspiration or- Yes,
0: inspiration and surprise and pictures that are remarkable.
1: And- what do you, what do you think that you you uh gained from keeping these scrapbooks all the, these years like was it did you refer to them for inspiration when you would
0: yeah if i wanted or? to show someone how i wanted curtains made or mm-hmm. things in the garden mm-hmm. and you had to convince i for 10 years i was chairman of the garden committee here and i was always having to show things no it was A pastime that that was interesting.
1: Dita Blair's impact on American medicine and public wealth is mammoth. She learned a lot about the world of philanthropy early on from her friend Mary Lasker, which we'll speak about. She's been heavily involved with everything research-related, from the American Cancer Society and the Breast Cancer Task Force, to the Board of Trustees at the Scripps Research Institute and the Harvard School of Public Health and for a time works as an advisor in the medical industry, forging collaborations between academia and biotech firms. Simply put, she knows her stuff, and it's not just for show. I wanted to ask Dita about these many accomplishments, most notably her research initiative for disorders of the brain, dedicated to her son who passed after a long battle with depression. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your career in medical research and how that began? Because I read that you had met Mary Lasker, who is sort of, uh, she was a pioneer in in the American Cancer Society and the precursor for uh, an association that was a precursor to Planned Parenthood, I believe, way back in the day. And what was she like? and And how did she sort of give you that medical research uh, and medical, you know, fundraising bug, as it were?
0: Well, you only missed one thing of great importance, which she did, was she really was responsible for growing the budget of the National Institutes of Health. It was tiny. She had a black book like a filofax, and there was a page that went out like this for all of the years. And she went, her husband said no private funds or, or foundations will ever really solve the health problems that exist, and there has to be federal money. And so she went and called on senators and congressmen and enlisted other people to do the same thing. And she really is responsible for the enormous growth of the NIH budget. We met, Bill took me, Bill was a great friend, and Mary had been, been a great friend of Stevenson. he took me for dinner one night. And she had a staggering art collection. I mean, something like seven or nine fantastic quality Matisses. Picasso, Vantal uh Braque. She had wonderful painting. And I could barely talk to the dinner guests. I was just looking at the pictures, she said, why don't you come back for tea, and we'll talk about the pictures, which I did the next day. And we became friends immediately. And she came to Denmark for our wedding and was godmother of our son. Every summer, we went and stayed with her. She rented the most beautiful house, I think, in the world, the Villa Fiorentina in saint jean The Lasker Awards are acclaimed as the most prestigious American Science Awards. And I would always attend jury meetings and listen to the discussions and have the books and read it. And then I went on the board of the American Cancer Society and that, again, was reading research grant applications. And I I found the whole subject just totally fascinating. Two summers when I came home from the Philippines, she sent me off to Memorial and I would spend the day with a wonderful doctor there that did both research as well as patient care. And he made me realize there could be a role for people who would become advocates of medical research. And we had lots of projects Some probably inspired or derived from the awards. We gave an award for the discovery of the importance of cholesterol. At that time, people were developing drugs, the statins. And so we went to the Secretary of Health and said, this must be publicized. Probably of all global public health efforts, that's one of the the, cholesterol and treatment of high blood pressure is one of the most successful. We also were interested in biological response modifiers, interferon. We also looked at young biotech companies. We went out to Genentech when there were eight fermenters, and we went back the next year, and there were 20, three times the size. And so we we, we lived at a very, a moment of dis- profoundly important discovery in research, and we both followed it very closely.
1: And uh, your your own philanthropy, the Dita Blair Research Initiative for Disorders of the Brain, um, which is where the proceeds of your book um, are going. And I'm curious, in, in your years of, of working with all of these, these advances, um, is there anything from back in the day where you thought, oh, gosh, this was going to, you know, change the world and maybe it didn't pan out that way or or it something that you thought would never come to light actually did um, any sort of, you know, because you had sort of a front row seat to a lot of advances that people may not have realized until years later or or not?
0: I'm not. Aware or not thinking about what didn't pan out. My earliest interest was in cancer because that had the largest budget at NIH and fantastically talented people. And I was attending cancer meetings. I could tell you how to prescribe adriamycin, for example. You much it can't be more than five grams with <laughs> the heart problem, you know, that kind of thing. I really got into it. And then the next thing really went into deeply was AIDS. And I was on the visiting committee at the Harvard School of Public Health and also an advisor to what was then called the Department of Cancer Biology, but it changed into a Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease and became the Harvard AIDS Institute. And that was my first fundraising. People were doing wonderful and remarkable things for AIDS patients the care, the feeding. the I tend to support basic research, discovery research. And that's what was happening at the Harvard AIDS Institute. And we also worked in Africa. And I did 20 years of that. And it's interesting. If, it was the first time I ever read the word pandemic in the Boston Globe. And now to have it come back so many years later when the word is used every day. And this was one column using the word pandemic. You know, there were horrible flu epidemics going back to the 18th century and smallpox. And we have been able to discover vaccines and treatments for so many, but we still don't have an AIDS vaccine. But with exciting technology ripping apart the whole genetics, these messenger RNA vaccines are a wonderful advance. So I, I was very active in the field and then two friends, one was Swiss and he was head of Sandoz in America and I did a few things with him and then he asked me if I would become an advisor to him and their head of research, looking at biotech companies and also academic institutions with whom they would form alliances and do progress. And those were unbelievably interesting years. And then I had known a very brilliant man at Johnson & Johnson, and he started a venture capital firm. And he asked me if I would become an advisor. And I said, but I'm, I know nothing about venture capital and I'm not a financial person. He said, but you are a science person. And I did that simultaneously. That was fascinating because science depends on collaboration, it doesn't happen all in one lab. And getting collaborations sponsored was one of the great things done by the biotech venture people. I I have been so lucky. I mean, very lucky in things that come into my life to do.
1: And uh, I read that you were on the Breast Cancer Task Force Treatment Committee. Um, do you, Can you tell me what year about that would be?
0: That would have been in the late 70s, early 80s, I think.
1: And I think you were the only woman on the board, somewhat ironically.
0: Somewhat ironically, and also with no letters out. There was no MD or PhD. And I knew quite a few of the scientists on it. So I was comfortable enough with them. But then they started sending me with two or three others on field trips to, to look at mammogram instruments and things like that. And the first one I had a very large suitcase and I learned, no, there can't be a suitcase. And uh, I the chairman was very exacting and I think he hadn't wanted to have the presence of a woman or non scientist. But at the end he said perhaps the nicest sentence I ever heard, You never skewed the curb, to Eda. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you ever find it? you know, back then uh, ever challenging to sort of be the the woman in the room when you're having to call on a senator to try to get them to, you know, put more money into the NIH or, you know, or something like that?
0: Well, it it was challenging to do in the beginning because I was so enthusiastic about what I was doing on the Breast Cancer Task Force because these were the early days of identifying the role, the hormone role, and also, you know, the pattern of therapy. And you'd go into someone like Tip O'Neill's office, and there'd be two women who had had breast cancer. And he'd mention it, and I'd say, well, this is happening, this is happening. And I would be much too technical. <laughs> so finally, Mary had to whisper it, I'm too technical. <laughs> for, for lobbying. <laughs>
1: um, now might be, a, I heard that you have some uh, something printed out uh, that I think you wanted to read possibly. Would you like to read that now? Or
0: I'd like to tell you about my research initiative for disorders of the brain. I happened to be preparing this paper for someone and I thought it's as concise as it can be and it would be better to read it some years ago, I attended a neuroscience conference at which Thomas Insel, MD, director of the National Institute of Mental Health for 13 years, made an observation that had a strong impact on me. He said, we have made great advances at the molecular, cellular, and systems level in our understanding of the brain and its workings. We've got fantastic basic science. What we haven't yet done is translate this into new diagnostics or treatments for psychiatric diseases. As a result of my many years in medical advocacy, I came to recognize that a gap does persist between our understanding of the biology of psychiatric diseases and the practice of psychiatry. I felt these comments were important and needed further exploration. My reasons were far from dispassionate. For me, the subject was one of the deep personal interest. In May of 2004, after a long, tough struggle, with bipolar disorder. Our son, William, ended his own life. He was 41. After William's death, I began to concentrate on ways to advance research in the study of mental illness. What is needed? I asked scientists across the country. What is missing? These discussions caused me to reflect on ways I could help by funding bold and even risk-taking research by the next generation of scientists committed to addressing the causes and treatment of mental illness. What makes this research initiative unlike others is that it will provide unrestricted, flexible seed money to the most creative young scientists so, that they will have the freedom to explore new observations and ideas that may be too early or too scientifically ahead of their time to be covered by traditional research grounds. Fortunately, having served on the board of the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, FNIH, for a quarter of a century, I knew where to look for a partner. Thus, it was worth was within the framework of the FNIH and their strong infrastructure that the Dita Blair Research Initiative for Disorders of the Brain was established. In 2021, in collaboration with FNIH and the National Institute of Mental Health, and guided by the research initiative's own super scientific award selection committee. The first research awards were given to three young leaders whose work shows exceptional thoughtfulness, innovation, and knowledge. These are young people who have not yet received grants or from foundations or, or NIH. My fervent hope is that the foundation's work will contribute to the forging of new paths and understanding of the brain.
1: Dita's new book, edited by Deborah Needleman, former editor-in-chief at T Magazine, is a true accomplishment. It shares many of her recipes from her years of entertaining, beautifully captured at her apartment here in New York. It also details the highlights of her life that give context to the foods and ideas found within. Best of all, the food she presents in the book are centered around fantasy menus that take place at some of her favorite locations she's been to throughout her life. And yes, her famous Polaroid portraits, taken by Andy Warhol, are included in the book, even though she initially resisted the idea. Dita isn't one to brag, and she's the least likely to write something like a tell-all. It all just makes this particular tome so fascinating. I wanted to ask Dita about it all, and get the real stories that inspired the fantasy menus. A book even any anything with recipes in it is a huge undertaking, as anybody knows, huge and way more than you would someone would think um not to mention the fact that much of it is shot here in this apartment that I'm in, and also it delves much into your life and travels and even travels of the mind and fantasy meals and things like that so why did you decide to put yourself through uh, the trauma of doing, of doing a book like this?
0: During many times in my life, people said to me, you should write a book. And most often they said, you should write a cookbook. And someone said, you should write a story of your biotech life. Well, that just seemed rather absurd to me. and I had other more interesting and more important things to do. I had friends who were quite persuasive. And when COVID hit and the quarantine came, I was alone except for a housekeeper and realized if I had a a project to dig into. And also, if you remember, it was the time of the election. And so most nights I was endlessly watching MSNBC or CNN and I would have books and papers in my lap and always doing, you can call it multitasking. So I thought, well, why not give it a try? And I have a wonderful friend. I think the most profound and interesting writer on mental illness and other conditions, Andrew Solomon. And he wrote an introduction. It was so beautifully written, I had an even greater challenge to live up to it. So I began developing the thought that I want this book to be as different as possible. I don't want it to look like a cookbook. I don't want it to look like anything seen before so it's filled with photographs and works of art yes there's 71 of my best recipes and they're beautifully illustrated but there's a lot more. It's, it it the book is different and there were parts of it that were particularly interesting and fun to do there's a section called fantasy menus And I chose places that I loved or people that I loved. And one of the first ones you see is a wonderful small palace outside of Stockholm called Haga. And it has the most beautiful neoclassical room you've ever seen. And the whole property is on water. And it was Gustav III who uh, arranged this and he had very sophisticated taste. all the furniture is French and gardens wonderful and so I did a menu imagining something that would be fun to have I think I think it's a luncheon menu. then uh, another one, for example, there was an extraordinary exhibition on Egypt, and the lost islands off of Alexandria. And I saw it in Paris for an hour at the Grand Palais, the most extraordinary setting arranged where the walls were dark like the sea and lights on the objects. And I had—I was catching a plane and I had to go. So suddenly I read that it was in St. Louis and very charming friends who have a private plane and they were saying, You haven't been anywhere in so long because of back. Uh, where would you like to go? And I said, I'd love to go to Canada to see the Cabot Gar- Gardens. He said, Oh, we were just there last year. I said, And the other place I long to go is St. Louis. I said, There's a f- fantastic exhibition. So I did the picnic for the plane trip out, and that was fun. And I did a lunch at Jean Chez. Hubert's house in the country. I did a place I adore. I've made five trips to St. Petersburg, and I find there are so many extraordinary places and collections, and the treasures in the Hermitage and some of the palaces are remarkable. And so I did a suggested dinner at Pavlovsk, and I also did petite Petit Trianon one, and then this was just sort of different and fun when people called me up and said, can't we have some more of your menus? <laughs> it was interesting to do the book and great fun in the beginning, choosing the pictures. But when you got to doing the recipes and it really was a great deal of work, I hoped that it would be successful because the proceeds will go to this research initiative fund for disorders of the brain.
1: I think you had mentioned to me the uh, particular recipe in the book that had been really successful with your friends, and you've gotten a lot of feedback about it. Can you can you tell us oh, which one? Oh,
0: that's that's a recipe. It's called caviar souffle, and it's if you it it's, it is not difficult. It's not a complex souffle. black like, there's no flour in it. An in individual souffle. Cups and on top of the souffle is creme fraiche with scallions in it, chopped scallions, and then a fistful of watercress. And then we use paddlefish caviar on top. And people like, seem to like it quite a lot.
1: And I read in an article that, you know, you do things like you serve lobster for Thanksgiving um, and that. I don't
0: care for turkey.
1: You don't care for turkey, uh, And that you never allowed a Christmas tree in the home.
0: Well, no, that's up. not true.
1: That's not true? Okay. We
0: had Christmas trees when our son William was young, and we had them in the embassies. But when we lived in Washington, we always left Christmas Day either to go to Bill's family in Chicago or to go to Antigua the next day. And I hated to think of people putting on lights and taking off lights and wrapping up decorations. The whole thing, I hate wasted time and it just didn't seem necessary. But then son and I had a pact. One year he could choose the tree and another year I could choose it. So I always chose holly trees and wrapped the roots and root ball in moss and then they were planted outdoors afterwards and he would choose very traditional trees. Uh
1: there's a fantasy meal in the book uh, that I mentioned earlier uh is a Sunday lunch uh at La Fiorentina and can you l- explain a little bit about it's a house in the south of France uh if I'm if I'm correct and uh you know a very real place that you went to visit what was that like like well, where where is it first of all and and
0: well Uh, saint jean Cap ferreau is about 40 minutes from Nice. And it's uh, a portion of land that goes out into the sea, then comes back and it's part of the coastline. And there, there are nothing but really lovely houses on it. And this one was all but destroyed in the war. And Rory Cameron, who's a legend in... England and France and here even, had wonderful taste. He was a writer. He wrote books on Australia, Captain Cook, India, traveled a great deal, collected, and had wonderful taste. And his mother was Lady Kenmere, and she was quite an exotic woman. And they bought this destroyed ruin, and he created it a very beautiful palladian house and enormous rooms about seven guest rooms and it just it was flawless in terms of the decoration it was just interesting attractive and different and very special and um, Mary Lasker would rent it every summer for the month of August. I mean, the first summer we went for, I think, a week or 10 days. And then after that, Mary and I had become such good friends. I'd stay the whole month. And the last three days, we'd have no guests, and we'd begin to plant, plot our work. And But it, at that moment of time, people came for lunches and dinners, and you went out a lot black tie it was another era
1: and another another meal the the last meal i wanted to bring up which you had mentioned earlier with which is um Pavlovsk Palace in St Petersburg um and there's one of the meals is you know fantasy meals is set there and you had once uh it mentions in the book that you had once eaten there in the rose pavilion and do you remember you know what that was like especially in a, a social occasion in Russia at the time
0: oh a great friend of mine, Helene de Ludinghausen, who lives in Paris, is the last of the Stroganov family. And there is a Stroganov palace in St. Petersburg. And many of the palaces were damaged or destroyed, and certainly time took its toll. And she started a foundation. To that would help not only the Stroganov Palace, but Pavlovsk and Gatchina, and some of the museums, and organized these trips. She had a huge number of very interesting, very attractive friends. I think she did either five or seven trips where you got yourself to Paris, and then it was a private plane to St. Petersburg the Grand Hotel. And then every minute was planned. The first year, she even had that very good caterer from Paris come because she wasn't sure the food would be good enough. And then she found out that she we she didn't have to do that. But she organized the sightseeing, you know, like you could go to the Hermitage on the day it was closed and Pavlovsk on the day it was closed. So you were you, you, you know, it was very privileged sightseeing. And um, the most extraordinary restoration of any building I've ever seen was Pavlovsk. And they started a school in St. Petersburg for all of the uh, sort of decorative artisans. And um, so that people who did plaster work, people who did... Um, sculpting, um, cabinetry, were all super well-trained. Quite a few of them are over in New Jersey now. <laughs> and um, all of the furniture, the director of Pavlov's managed to get out before the Germans came. And you can imagine, bubble paper did not exist in those days. And wrapping it all up and sending it by train into Siberia, and that came back. And then the same director followed the Germans when they were leaving because they were taking remaining things, door handles, or, and he would manage to capture those. So it was very much restored with the original things who had been in it. I'm just looking up a menu I did for that, which was tomato a la russe which is... A bed of watercress, and it has to be done in summer, really, when you have really good tomatoes. And then again, creme fraiche and, and scallion and the caviar. And then we had poulet au grosel which I just described to you. Mm-hmm. And there's a really good re- recipe in the book, frozen lemon souffle. And it's nice because you can make it a day or two ahead.
1: Uh, you know, one, one question I think we had chatted about before. Um, is you know something people call like the the takeaway when someone reads the book and perhaps goes through a few recipes maybe tries a few and, and puts the book down what would you like them to understand something to take away in, in their in their mind or in their heart about um, you and your sort of philosophy on on everything
0: Frankly, as it turned out, there's much too much about me in the book. I do. Too many pictures, just too much. I was working with two editors and <laughs> it came up on me. And I thought that having as many wonderful photographs I mean, we had a photographer, Nock, who is spectacular. And every picture she took was just a dream. And then I had great friend, Kathy Graham, did flowers for me. And she is a major talent. And there was a lot because uh, um, the cook who came to do the cooking for the pictures had retired. She came back. And it, it, there was a lot going on. And I didn't write the book Thinking, what do I want people to take away it the book just evolved I mean it's filled with my beloved Italian paper dividers, and it's very much like my vellum scrapbooks. I would like them to take away that the book was written related with the proceeds going to the research initiative fund that was always in my mind, because I spend my life writing letters, and I did an enormous amount of fundraising for AIDS Harvard, and I've done considerable fundraising for mine. I mean, we'll stop and my estate will go largely to it, but um, I thought perhaps people might contribute. Two people Three people have and two of them were strangers, which I liked very much. And I mean, that was really the purchase, the purpose of the book, as well as a diversion for me during COVID. And it was it was it was not unlike doing the scrapbooks.
1: And and if you if you had to describe a planned menu in three like at that that leaves a really wonderful memory well in three words what would you what words would you say encapsulates a meal or or an evening let's say
0: the caviar souffle
1: (laughs) that's three words yeah
0: because people are just astonished when they go it's on the table when they come in and they're just astonished
1: Thank you to Dita Blair, Pam Summers, and everyone at Rizzoli for making this episode happen. For more information about the Dita Blair Research Initiative for Disorders of the Brain, or to donate, visit the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health at fnih.org donate to Blair Initiative. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with her email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time!